Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it was just a plan it's 100 acquisition of green beacon no we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer. And this week, we meet Steph Constantoulis and Max Hamilly from Filter Brewing. Steph is a co-founder of Filter, and as you'll hear, he describes himself as being classically trained in branding, and you'll hear what that means in the chat, with experience at some of the largest drinks businesses in the country. Max also is classically trained, this time in brewing, because Max hails from Bavaria and studied brewing and beverage technology at the iconic Weinstefan University. And he also built his experience at Reidenberger Brauhaus. So what happens when the classical meets the craft in Sydney's inner west? Well, that's what this chat ends up being about. We discuss branding, the drinky cultures of Germans and Australians, and what role prescriptive regulation may or may not play in that, how the Rheinheitsgebot impacts modern craft brewing, and what's happening at Filter as Sydney's inner west develops as a craft brewing hotspot. It's a fun chat, and for all the ground it covers, it left so many places that it could have gone. I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. And welcome to the conversation, Stefan Constantoulis, and also Max Hamillay. Now, have I got those? I, I got it right off mic, but uh, did I do it okay that time? Mate, I'll, I'll give you a thumbs up for that, mate. Okay. Well done. I mean, uh, as I said before, it's not even my term is not even German, so good pronunciation. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's trying to go up from here, mate. <laughs> so, if you're listening, I'll just get Max uh, to identify himself so people recognize the voices. Yeah, so uh, this is Max. Hi to everyone. Um, I'm originally from Germany. I'm head brewer at Filter Brewing. Steph, uh, just so everyone recognizes your voice. Yeah, mate, um, I'm the non-European um, version um, <laughs> in the room. So it should be, should be pretty easy to distinguish between the two of us. Yeah. One of us you'll understand and one you'll be scratching your head. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, then obviously Steph, where you correct. Actually, it's which one? Can you figure out which one? That's, that's the yeah. challenge for your listeners. <laughs> There you go. Well, Steph, we, we might start with you because I, I, I think um, Sam Fuss is probably the best known filter re- representative because she's, she's been the brewer. She's uh, you know sort of large in life character. And you've always been, uh, you know, so far as we're concerned, you're the man who sort of responds to emails and, you know, uh, d- d- does all of the admin side of it. So maybe tell us a little bit about who is uh, Steph Constantoulis. Yeah, mate. So between... Filter started for, for people who don't know is um, so Mick and I, so Mick Neal, we're neighbors, we live in Marrickville. And one day over a few too many beers, we decided that we should start a brewery. And that was really the first kick or the first, you know, little you know seedling for, for Filter to be born. Um, and, you know, so a lot of people don't realize that the two mates of Marrickville is, you know, where it kind of all kicked off. Um, my background, I've had a background in beer, um, so I've worked with the big boys, 
the bad boys that we don't like to talk about. Um, for, <laughs> we do on this podcast. <laughs> We're happy to. So I worked there for a long time, um, working on you know brands like Forex and Tui's, and you know watched as craft grew. Like working on Squires back in the day when it was almost a dirty word in the in the big beer industry. So, um, well, was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's been been a, a journey always in in booze for me. Um, did a bit of a stint at Jim Beam before starting Filter. Um, but yeah, the way Filter kind of kicked off was you know Mick and I over that conversation. And then about nine months of planning later, um, meeting you know Simon, who's our other business partner. Um, who you know shared our vision and what we wanted to do for the brand to to finally meeting Sam and um, getting Sam to actually you know turn that that brand vision into actual liquid which um, you know she did a great job at. I re- reflect back a lot on the early days of craft beer where it was as you've identified very much a sort of rebellion you know an insurrectionist movement against the the, the big brewers yep. and. As, as it's grown, you know, we haven't seen, uh, and I was very uh, bullish in those days that craft beer was going to become the thing that takes over the market and brings new, new people in. And, yep. you know, I was wrong. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the beer market hasn't grown. There has been a shift in, you know, within the market to, to some extent. Coming from the big brewers, you would have had, you know, a, a probably a little bit more, um, dare I say, sober view of the, of the beer market when you decided to, Put in real dollars uh, in, in, into your own business. What what, what was your thinking uh, around it? You know, what was your read on the market? Mate, for us, it was a fantastic opportunity. And and coming, I worked at Innovation at Line um, as one of the roles I kind of did there. And we, we knew this thing of craft was just gaining so much momentum. And you know, when when Mick and I first sat down, and we're like, this is the time to get in at the moment. I think when we jumped in five years ago. It was there or thereabouts 450, 480 odd craft breweries. And, you know, you probably know the number a lot better than me right now. Um, I'm sure it's over 800. Well, I think the physical breweries are like Filter, probably around about 600. You know, and then, then you've got all of the contract brands uh, on top. And I think there was about 450, 450, including contract back then. Yep. So it's, it's almost doubled in those that five-year period. But for us, we saw this opportunity for, you know, to be part of a growing trend and a growing industry and something that, um, you know, I guess Mick also coming from a corporate background, um, he was the um, CEO of O'Neill, the manager mm-hmm. of O'Neill Surfwear. We kind of really wanted to do something for ourselves and for our community. And, you know, instead of putting money into, you know, the, the hands of overseas investors, basically, which was, you know, a 90% of the industry in Australia, um, actually starting to actually you know, take a share of that, put it into our own hands and give it back to the community. And for us, that pie, when we saw it and when we identified where we wanted Filter to sit into it, we didn't want to just become another craft beer brand. And hopefully, you know, you can see that from our branding and the way we, you know, we present ourselves. We we like to be a bit different, but we're also trying to capture new people into this, this category and help grow that pie. And I think if we continue to do that and the new breweries that are coming in or, you know, existing breweries continue to have that mentality to grow that pie, you know, for us, we only see up. And I know you may think there's a bit of a you know, slowdown, but I think also the fact that, you know, the big boys keep taking out the big boys in our area, it really skews the market. But that allows, you know, you know the independent, the true independence to kind of take that that mantle, which is now left from, you know, the sale of things like Stone and Wood and Bolter. So for us, we only see it as positive and upside. 
Well, we might come back to some of the mechanics of uh, of the brand, you know, particularly the the, the branding, which was so distinctive um, when you launched. But we might uh, introduce you, Max. So clearly, not from around these parts, you know. Hello. <laughs> for somebody who's on a beer podcast, um, you know, I, I, I love that you are German. You were trained at the Weinstefan uh, Brewing Academy. Um, you know, you, you learned to brew. So it's, it's it's a very authentic brewing conversation that we're having today. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, to, to be a brewer. So yeah, you obviously figured out the staff was just on the on the talk, and that's the one with the second language as English. Uh, <laughs> the other one with first language, English as first language. <laughs> so yeah, um, let's start from the beginning on. Um, uh, so. Uh, Far back, I would say in uh, 2006, I actually did my compulsory service in the army and uh, we still had compulsory service in Germany. And uh, during that time, I was like thinking, hmm, what do I want to do? I had my high school degree and uh, didn't wanna, didn't really want to do any, well, hyphen like normal trade. I want to do something extraordinary. I was like, okay, become a brewer. So I started my apprenticeship 2007 with a well-known brewery in the southwest of Bavaria, where I'm also, well, I'm from the east of Bavaria, the brewery is in the west. Did an apprenticeship there for three years, then worked as a lab brewer, like in the laboratory for another year. And yeah, during that time, I felt like, okay, you like the job is working actually as a, like a mechanical brewer, doing a lot on the floor and stuff, but you want to, Kind of you want to um, yeah improve a bit in your knowledge and stuff. So then I found out okay you can study brewing and beverage technology in Munich at the uh, Weinstefan University, and uh, that was for me like oh perfect. That kind of like uh, they kind of came straight towards me. And I was like I got to do this. So applied there and uh, started there in 2012 and did a five years bachelor of engineering degree uh there was also included winemaking spirits water technology microbiology a little bit of uh actual manufacturing of the of the uh, hardware and stuff what's going on in the brewery but obviously the main focus was on beer and um yeah i really enjoyed that uh, that course and in the fifth semester uh, we had to do an internship in a brewery and we kind of had, yeah, we kind of had free choice where to go. And I was like, nah, I don't really want to do it in Germany. I'm going to go somewhere overseas. So I started looking for, uh, for breweries around the world. And I like a lot of people in the, in the, in Europe kind of would probably start to like look at the U S to be honest, the USA was not very responsive. <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of. It was already March and I wanted to get something by June. I was like, hang on, there's a country down south somewhere. <laughs> hasn't really been on my, on my radar yet. So there you go, you haven't looked in Australia yet. Maybe go down to Australia. So um, uh, I found out about the Australian brewery in Rouse Hill, Northwest Sydney, and um, shot them an email, the uh, email to the former head brewer, Neil Cameron, and he kind of responded in between eight hours to me and just said, yeah, cool, when do you want to come? And the whole thing was set, and long story short, I did the apprentice, uh, the, the internship with them. They hired me after, my, after I finished my course in Germany uh, end of 2015 again, and then we applied for a skilled working visa. I came back in February 2017, pretty much the same year when Filter started. 
and I worked four and a half years with the Australian brewery. Started uh, as lead brewer with Filter Brewing last year under under uh, Sam Foos as f- former head brewer. And uh, yeah, well, and after another eight months, having great experience with Filter and just absolutely love it here. Now fully in charge as head brewer and um, excited to put my stamp on it, right? <laughs> Coming from Germany, which you know clearly has a beer culture, a culture of drinking beer, um, and, you know, it, it's embedded in, in, in the national... Who told you that? Now that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, again, do you? Like, does Germany? Because that's one of the, you know, it, it's certainly a trope that people um, like myself perpetuate. You know, does Germany have a culture of respecting and drinking and enjoying beer um, as, you know, just part of the cultural identity? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think... Um, uh... It's a bit more regional, I think, in uh, in in Germany and especially in Bavaria. So um, while in Australia, of course, the older folks, I would say, they obviously stick to like bigger brands, for example, but they also go into like craft beer um, when it's not too extraordinary, I would say. But in but they would also obviously Sydney Sydney uh, people drink beers from yeah from Queensland or from Victoria. While in Germany, for example, their beer culture is very rich. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, I'd like to tell you, you know, you wouldn't find a forex in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to name anything. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's a bit different back home. Uh, so, um, a Bavarian beer drinker, a traditional Bavarian beer drinker, which is which kind of shows the culture, sticks to his local beer. Their brewery is maybe 15 kilometers away from him, and it's very unusual that this guy would drink any other beer. So a very narrow, narrow, very narrow vision towards what they want to drink. Very loyal, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the the younger folks, I would say, let's say between eighteen and thirty, and then uh, a bit further up to forty, they are a bit more open already. And there's a lot of like, um, yeah, craft beer breweries going on already in Germany, obviously under the purity law. So with our uh, main ingredients in the beer, and um, uh, but they kind of find their ways how to still make very unique beers and new beer styles and bring that to the people. So that's kind of like it will, from my point of view, it will become part of the culture at some point. But so far, it's a very, a very specific regional beer culture. Every single state, I would say, in Germany has their own, has got their own beer culture with their own beer styles. So it's very unusual that in Bavaria you would, for example, brew a Kirsch or an Altbier. Yeah, so they brew it up there. So, but they all kind of stick to their regional beer styles pretty much. And that's that's how they also then set up the beer festival and stuff. Like Oktoberfest is just the biggest one in, in, uh, in Bavaria or in Germany. There's so many small ones. Uh, they pretty much start from about March and go into October and yeah, and they have them everywhere in Germany and they kind of like shows the regional culture. There's not so much a common German culture, always more like state by state. They do their own thing. So had you been to Australia before you took the job down here? It doesn't sound like you had been. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've been uh, uh, down here for the internship in 2014. That was your first time here? That was my first time here, yeah. That was uh, four or six months. I've also been over to 
beer farm in WA back then and helped setting up the brewery because they were about to start. But I was only four, six weeks, so I only had like a little bit of an influence for that. Uh, so that was my first time and then came back in 2017. Coming from Germany, where you have that very strong regional uh, beer culture, what was your impression of Australians and Australian beer drinking habits? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> from the first look, it doesn't look very different to us Germans, actually. When you go a bit further into it, um, I think there is sometimes um, a little bit more in Australia, I've got to say, a little bit more uncontrolled drinking. So uh, I think um, because back home, beer is from 16, for example. So uh, you kind of get slowly used to it. It's a bit like an introduction to the beer wine in Australia from 18. They wait until they get 18 and then they want to get smashed. And when, when you got people that want to get smashed with 18 and they, they keep that habit up, they're obviously going to keep going with that. While back home in Germany, you don't even have to be 16. Let's say you're 13. You're sitting with your parents and with your parents' friends, and they're all having a beverage in their hand. They are probably say, okay, have a soup. You know, just have a soup. That's, that's just normal. So it's not like, oh, everything is forbidden until you're 18. So it's a bit of like a slow process. So that's why... I think um, it's a bit more controlled drinking back home, which doesn't mean that there is, well, less alcoholism, but um, uh, it's, it seems a bit more more calmer, maybe. Easier yeah, yeah, easier step just, in. Just yeah. to be clear from yeah. that point, um, yeah. Filter does not uh, condone underage drinking. No, no, no. no. <laughs> just for any of the ABAC people listening to this podcast. Um, yes. That's well, it's actually not ABAC. It's yeah. fair listening to it and then complaining to ABAC. So it's, it's not ABAC's fault. You like that? I like that. Yeah. I just have to say that as a comparison, but also yeah. I'm, I'm obviously all for uh, from 18. <laughs> but, but Max, is there a, um, you know, what, what's the social acceptance of, drunken bad behavior for example because in australia yeah you know for better or for worse and probably for worse arguably um there is a fair bit of acceptance that that's just part and parcel of having a night out that someone's going to be badly behaved someone's going to you know sort of lose their dinner um those sorts of things which is a very ugly um side of yeah. you know overconsumption what's what is the um cultural acceptance of that sort of behavior and then you know being visibly hung over or obviously hung over the day after a, a night out we, we don't really have much um alcohol laws back home so uh um for example the uh, rsa for example there's something we don't have so um you um when you go out you pretty much well, you don't have a limit on drinks, basically. So, and the bartender wouldn't say anything because it's actually not quite in their right to tell you what to do back home. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, even if you, let's say, throw up in front of the bar, they're not legally allowed to throw you out. Really? Wow. Okay. No, no, no. But, but okay, so, so they're not allowed to, but it, would it be a common occurrence or to be a regular occurrence? No, or, no it's not would, because, as I said before, I think it's a bit of a calmer drinking back home. People mm. definitely get wasted, but I think they are a bit more conscious about that they don't want 
they don't want to embarrass themselves. So that's probably a bit different. I mean, there's of course there's fights and stuff back home, but it's a. Uh, I think it's it's it's, uh, it's it's very low. I wouldn't even only compare it with Australia now, but even with other European countries, I think in Germany it's kind of was almost going to say cultivated drinking. Um, yeah, that's probably what it is. And um, I mean, and then the bartender, for example, is allowed to have a drink with you. It would even be rude when you come to the bartender. And you know, you know each other, and then oh, let's have a drink, and he says no. He probably would be. I probably would be saying, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, different countries, different, different cultures, it's different yeah. cultures. Yeah. So that's, uh, so um, there's nothing I would say I would prefer, whatever, because uh, you obviously you adapt to wherever you live and that's totally fine. What do you think underpins that difference in alcohol? Because it, it sounds like you don't need laws because there's not the behavior. Yeah, yeah. You know, so one of the questions that I automatically ask is, is there a behaviour because there are laws? There is probably when, if, if, there, if, if there was more laws, for example, back home, like there is laws in Australia, there is obviously uh, certain behaviours because you obviously then more conscious about, okay, you, you, still about that, like you, you can embarrass yourself, you can get kicked out, you, uh, you can pay a fine, you... Um, Maybe you can get banned from the pub or whatever. I mean, that, that happens back home as well. I mean, if you, I would say if it comes to violence back home in Germany, then this is something where bar staff would say, you got to go because then you physically harm other people, right? This is the way where, and it's the same in Australia, obviously, when you get violent or like uh, abusive or whatever, this is an absolute no-go and then you obviously got to go. It, it seems yeah. to me though, like yeah. we're talking about, the differences between two cultures and drinking, but yeah. I wonder what the flip side, Matt, would be if yeah. you know someone, a brewer in Australia, went over and did the same podcast in Germany, mm. asked the same questions. Mm. Would that be something? I'm happy to do it if you want to send me over there, uh, Steve. <laughs> well, maybe. Well, let's do it. But I, you know what I mean? Like maybe that culture is like, well, yeah, there are some idiots that like to spoil the fun, but yeah. in general. Um, you know, people enjoy alcohol responsibly yeah. and, you know, have a good time doing it. And I think mm. in any country, in my view, it's, yeah. there's always a small percentage of idiots that want to ruin it for everyone. Yeah, totally. Mm. And, it's, Absolutely, yeah. and it's maybe it is the way we, you know, our media reports on it or, um, you know, that we do get a bad rap on it. I'm not sure. Um, well, well the, the, and that was where it, it fascinates me because I, I know in Australia, you know, like if um, the, the, there's an expectation that you celebrate with often an overindulgence in alcohol. And so the day after the grand final, like you've got the end of the football season trips where the media actually celebrate the drunken hijinks of footballers. Yeah. And there, there is tacit encouragement of yeah. high levels of alcohol consumption and the sometimes boorish behaviour that comes with it. And I wonder how much that creates a social acceptance, which was where I was just, you know, I, I know that there are differences yeah. in, in, in drinking, but I just wasn't sure what it was. But anyway, we were probably, we want to be talking much more about craft beer and filter. Coming from, uh, you know, Germany where you've got the Kölsch, you've got the, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, lager styles um, and hops in the craft beer expression hasn't really made the inroads that it has in places like America and uh, Australia. What was your experience coming from that for want of a better term, classic brewing style and then coming and having to use hops in a way that you probably hadn't trained in. Oh, mate, that was absolutely exciting for me. That's probably, that pro 
probably was the most uh, exciting and interesting part for me to go somewhere else because this kind of like specific craft beer lifestyle mentality that doesn't didn't really exist yet back home, which is coming right now because so many people back home stick to the to the local beers and stuff, the German beer styles. But um, that was kind of like my my uh, my go to reason why I wanted to go. USA, Australia, because I already knew there's craft beer coming up and stuff back in 2014. It already started uh, uh, kind of didn't quite go up the roof yet, but out of the roof yet. But it's it kind of like, yeah, it's getting there. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to see what's happening. And it's just, just so exciting for me to work out of the German purity law and actually be able to, yeah, let's face it, um, put different ingredients in your beers, like let's say, a fruit juice or lactose or dextrose for your beer or uh, do active fermentation hopping or do um, yeah more driving. Driving wasn't even that big 10 years ago back home. And all that kind of stuff, what I kind of what wasn't practiced back home, I could finally do here and had a way bigger spectrum of, of like creativity. So I was not quite limited when I thought about, okay, I want to, I want to brew this and I want to get this flavor in. But I, I would like to have a, a special ingredient for that to actually make it more towards that flavor, what I want now, what I got in my head. And it was in Germany, it was like, okay, I can't do that because I'm kind of stuck to the purity law. While I came down to Australia, no purity law. I was like, well, that's, that's great. You can have like what, whatever you got in your mind you want to brew, different beer style with combined with this, with that. With, with this ingredient, with that ingredient. So that was the, the very, the very uh, interesting part for me. And that's why I pretty much also sticked here in Australia because first first one or two years was like, oh, yeah, I'm a skilled working visa. I'm going to stay down here for a while. But I just, well, now it became my second home pretty much. And I don't have any intention to go home, go home any soon. So... <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Matt. We're breaking into this podcast for a word from our sponsor, as we like to say. But not just any sponsor, as you know at Brews News, we're very selective who we work with. And this is a special partnership with Lark Whiskey, which is soon to release the fifth incarnation of its collaboration with Wolf of the Willows Brewery. In this annual exchange of ideas and whiskey barrels between Lark and Wolf, Lark hand-selects whiskey casks and sends them to the Victorian-based brewery, who fills them with Imperial Johnny Smoke Porter. Before it is decanted, and the now beer-infused casks are filled with single malt whiskey. Hang around at the end of this podcast to hear my chat with Chris Thompson, master distiller at Lark, and how he discusses the collaboration. But here's a bit of a teaser that actually comes from my preliminary chat with Chris, who gives me some surprising insights when I ask him what beer should do to become a little bit more like whiskey in the consumer's mind. Beer shouldn't try and be like whiskey. Whiskey should try and be like beer. The rituals involved with beer are integrated into society. They're not pretentious and they add so much. At Lark, we are trying to be more like beer, more democratic, more open and more welcoming to, to new drinkers. Traditionally, that's not what whiskey has been. Beer shouldn't be trying to be a more serious drink. It should be a fun but complex and continue to add to society. Now, that definitely was not the answer I was expecting. And if you enjoyed that, please hang around at the end of this podcast to hear more about Chris's approach to whiskey in this bonus chat. It's a really fascinating insight into the partnership between beer and whiskey. Um.
So it's the Reinheitsgebot, which is a purity law that you're you're, you're referring to. And correct my pronunciation, uh, yeah, but, if you like. Reinheitsgebot, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Reinheitsgebot. Is it ultimately a good or a bad thing for beer to have strictures like that um, on brewers? I think in terms of new beer styles, creativity, it is something that holds you back. Uh, in terms of uh, regional or countries like uh, regional matters or country matters like, uh, for example, Germany, it's an advertisement. In Europe, it's even here, even here, when it says brewed off the German purity law, it's a quality sign. And that's what it still is, what it is still back home. So even when you sell, when German beer gets sold to other European breweries, you know, okay, German brewers, they brew with their four main ingredients and that's it. And they, they're not going to put any adjuncts or whatever in, uh, while adjuncts actually, by the way, just mentioned as a side, it's nothing that kind of changes the beer or whatever. It's just a bit of a help at some point, sometime, for example, for the water. But um, uh, with those purity laws, uh, with, that, with that purity law, it just, um, it's just so well known that it's just brewed with those four ingredients and everyone knows around the world, okay, that must be then a good beer because it's so... Yeah, as it already says, pure, and um, that's a good advertisement and a good way to brew, definitely as well. But in terms of creativity and creating new beer styles, as I said before, they probably should by now maybe loosen it a bit from my perspective, kind of adapt a bit more on today's brewing industry, what's going on, what's possible. I think they. Don't get my word for it, but I think they did some changes already on the purity law back home. So, yeah. So because I, I, I am not yeah. aware of it, yeah. like, well, I haven't, yeah. and probably some of your listeners haven't either, Matt. So yeah. So it means you can only brew. Yeah, sorry. It's a it's certain. A, now, the purity law is the four ingredients. It's a malt, water, hops, and yeast. So you can't add anything else you and could sell be, it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah wow. Yeah, okay. exactly. So only with those four main ingredients, which is obviously main ingredient for every beer, but yep. then everything else is uh, technically not allowed. Uh, I, I know craft beer breweries back home. I don't know how they get around it. I've seen a, <laughs> I've seen a, on Instagram. A, well, I've seen that you can go into a pub and have a beer with your bartender. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't use. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so look, there's a there's a brewery in Munich called um, Crew Republic, and um, they posted on Instagram recently um, uh, rhubarb ginger something double IPA, and then even barrel aged after. Oh wow! And I saw the mash because it took a pick of the mash, and there's all rhubarb and ginger in there. And I commented, <laughs> "How do you get away with that on a purity law?" And they just responded with a shh. <laughs> and then probably deleted my comment. Yeah, there you go. That's how they get around it. Yeah. So uh, I, I think I could talk about uh, German beer culture for forever and how it compares, but let's uh, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, Australian beer culture for a moment. So, Steph, we heard about your background, your decision to set up Filter, and you wanted to stand out, and the particularly when the filter brand launched. And I remember when I opened the first, you know, 
sample and the, the the filter XPA with that really seventy retro sort of vibe that you know I don't think it's fair to say has been um, as we like to say at Bruce use homaged a little bit since then, um, but it was very distinctive. What were you going for with um, when you set up the brand? So for, for I'm classically trained in, in in brand, which is a great background. So, so what does classically trained mean in, 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 in brand, for example? Trained is in, I've worked in a big corporate organization under strict branding guidelines. Right. Makes sense. So, you know, you've got to have, you know, your, you know, your 20 different pieces to form a brand. So I'm not saying that's the right way to do it, but it's, it kind of gave me a basis to go, there's ways that you don't have to please everyone with what you're trying to achieve, but the biggest thing we wanted to achieve in our brand was we wanted to be seen and we wanted to be known and in a category which is so clustered um, and a lot of clutter in there because there's so many different um, you know uh, products on shelf we wanted people to be able to go if they walked into a bottle shop they could distinctly find filter xba quite easily on shelf mm. so there's a little bit of polarization in them and that's done on purpose um, I'd say a little bit because I know if I go back on all the comments and, and everything, there's probably been about 15% of people who absolutely hate our branding. But the great thing about that is they talk about our branding. They're having a reaction to it, yeah, which is exactly. which so is they, a tick. You want people to talk about your brand. Yeah, so If they like it or not, right? Having a slight yeah. amount of yeah. polarization in brand is actually a good thing um, in our view. And it's what we wanted to do. And but it's also paying homage. The good things from what we created with it, obviously from that little bit of something that could, you know, create a bit of banter, was we did want a brand that was very different to everything else was on market. We wanted simplicity. We wanted to stand out. But we also wanted to kind of give a bit of a, a hat nod back to the 1980s and late 70s of, of that really old school beer branding. And it was almost similar to the way, you know, Chuck Taylor's kind of had their rejuvenization. It's people like to kind of look back fondly on the past. And if you can kind of give them something in their hand that gives that little bit of a, you know, a nod to, to, to those times, it was um, to us, that was seen as a really positive thing for the brand. So I think when we first saw the, the, um, the first bit of artwork back, I remember my, um, the designer said, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine it's 1988 and you've just, Plunged your hand. I was one year old. (laughs) An ice cold esky. You don't want to know how old I was then, Max. (laughs) And you've just dug down and your hand's cold and you've pulled this can out. Now open your eyes and on the screen, he had pretty much uh, our XBA can sitting there. And and that was it. I don't know what it was, but I just immediately thought of the old charger, the, the old Valiant charger for some reason, which it wasn't the colours or anything like that. There was just something about it that maybe there was just the, that was the design at the time that Valiant chargers were around and there was just something very, yeah, that about There's it. something that ticks into your, your the back memory um, and that's what we wanted because that's, again, that piece when you go into to store, then you're going to be able to go, ah, oh, that's filter XBA. So it... it but the way we've always described it is it looks like something your dad used to drink, but the liquid is actually something you want to drink today. <laughs> That's well said. But see, it's funny. There's there, there something about a brand like that that it it needs to make you feel emotionally like it's something that your dad would have drunk, 
but there's still a reaction against the thing that your dad did drink, which is on the nose. So it's kind of like it has to be a, a bit of ironic retro as opposed to real yeah, retro yeah, to, to thread that needle. I, I also got to say, I mean, uh, when I, I got to admit, when I, when, I, when I started a filter, I didn't know yet they're going this way. But then Mick all of a sudden put um, 80s synth retro wave on. I was like, <laughs> yes, yes. And he was like, yeah, that's what it's all about. That, it was, that like, was perfect. Me. That was me. That wasn't Mick. I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I mean, I was born in the late 80s, but still actually I listened to 80s synth wave today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's something me and Max bond over. Yeah, exactly. Synth. Yeah. <laughs> Now, so tell me about the range. Because so you launched with the XPA. Um, now I had the Red Ale uh, this week. In fact, I, I took my team out for lunch, and it was one of the beers I pulled out to, to match with cheese. And I won't name the other beers, but it was the beer that I actually went back and got more of yep. because it was just such a good beer. It's a beautiful beer, and it was mm. actually. It's funny you say because yesterday it popped up on my Facebook um, the five year anniversary of the Red Ale. And it was around about three months after uh, we launched XBA that we did the, the red. And I know as we were sitting there, you know, Mick, um, Sam, uh, and myself, we were like, okay. Sam was like, what do you want me to brew next? And we were like, well, we've got the XBA. It's <laughs> Australia's number one pale. It's like, um, God crazy, what do you want to brew? She said, I've always wanted to brew a an easy drinking red. And I know Mick and I were at the time, we were like, okay, cool. So have you got some samples? You know, we can try and we can see what they're like. And she's like, nah, it doesn't exist really in the market. And we're like, okay, we'll hit the button on 50,000 cans. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just, a, when it came yeah. out, it was just a stunning beer. And it, it really fits, like the mantra for filter we've had, and I probably should have mentioned this with the branding, is we really wanted beers that were really approachable, sessionable. Even our bigger ABV beers, they're still quite, I'm not going to say, they're easier to drink. I think, but without being too heavy in alcohol. Balance is the way that I would describe it. You know, and, and, and again, somebody you know, very smart, much smarter than me, actually taught me about the the balance scales. Yeah, but it needs to be balanced. Yeah, and I think that that's what Sam's done so well with our, our beers um, over the years. And the red was just a great example of it. And it's to be honest, the red is a beer that if you ask someone uh, what beers they like a filter. And they say red's my favorite. You kind of know that they're a real true filter fan um, because it's just, it's got this little undergroundy kind of vibe to it. People who drink it have solidly, solidly been drinking it for five years. And, and that's a great thing. Um, and it's good to kind of stretch people beyond their, their normal as yeah. well. You know, to ex expand that taste range of people thinking, oh, it's a red, no, nah, I'm not going to drink that as my everyday beer. <laughs> It's the same thing even with our old ale, to be honest. It's it's about challenging people that you can actually start, you know, a session on an old or a red. You don't necessarily have to start in a lager or a pale. Um, yep. They're really good, easy drinking beers that you can, uh, you know, sit on. What sort of feedback do you get to it? Because, I, again, you know, going back into the very early 2000s when I was doing, uh, you know, very early beer and food lunches, I would often pull out Rogers yep. because it was a really mild malt based but didn't scare anybody but you would still pour it for people and like oh no i don't like dark beers thinking that they'd tried guinness once and didn't like the burnt toast flavor mm. thinking that everything 
darker than a pale lager would taste the same. You know, what, what, what sort of feedback do you get on that these days? Oh, I think once people try it and you, you do tastings or you do festivals, I mean, actually people see, you can see the changing of their face, like they're scared of it in some way, shape or form. But when you <laughs> actually try it, the surprise on people's face, you know, you're either going to love it or you don't, right? If you don't like those toffee flavours, you're still not going to really like those beers or a roasted flavour. I get that. But for people who do actually like those beers and go, wow, this actually is something that I could sit and enjoy. Mm. And it's not one of those beers that I have to get a 550 mil and share with four blokes. And, and that was what really we wanted to do with the red was, again, create a beer. Because at that point, you know, for us in the market, there was, you know, the American reds, those big red IPAs, or is it like your English ambers and... They were still challenging beers in, in some way, shape, or form for the for the um, easy drinker. Um, so I think that was really, again, setting about what Filter was really trying to achieve in market. Uh, and you know, I think Red really set that that platform for us, where we do want approachable beers, beers that you can you know you can pick up a six pack versus going no, I'm only going to pick up one can because that that yeah. will do me. Yeah. yeah. Well, it certainly does, and with steak or you know, so a little bit, it's just one of those beers that, particularly for a beer that's got a certain level of hoppiness to it, the the, the balance, it, it, it's, you know, I, I get myself into trouble saying that hops don't work with um, food, but when it's balanced and when it's I elegant like that, yeah. So that the red from from my perspective, and uh, when I when I started with filter, and had the first schooner of it, I was like. This is an awesome beer. This is so great. It actually became my favorite beer of our core range. So um, uh, whenever I take beers home, it's most <laughs> most likely the red. red. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, so, it's a yeah. really beautiful beer. Yeah, um, it's a nice recipe. It's beautiful to yeah. brew. There's no, you know, some beers are a bit tricky with like thick mash and stuff. You you've heard about that, and uh, it's just the red ale. It smells nice when you brew it. It, it already gives off so many flavors when you brew it. When from the early stage on when it's in the brew house to the fermenter to the bright tank it's just a enjoyable beer in the whole process mm. yeah and a yeah. good one for the uh the drinkers out there mate is a nice tip it works very well as a boiler maker <laughs> <laughs> there we there the flavors work really well together i will uh i'll remember that because nice uh, or something along those lines even a uh, a nice yeah. bourbon works really well okay maybe not okay i'll uh I'll, I'll, I'll remember that and uh I'm, I'm, i might even have a use for that but anyway um i'm very conscious of time one of the things i really wanted to talk to steph is i love a good brew pub you know i i um remember the first time i worked, walked into little creatures you know 18 years ago um and just said wow like this is the future of yep. pubs you know because not not even a brew pub just pubs the inclusiveness, the welcoming, the comfort. Last year during a brief interlude um, during the COVID, I got down to Sydney and did, did a bit of a wander and, you know, Filter was one of the places. And so I just sort of walked in unannounced and sort of snuck in. And, you know, from the brickwork outside, you walk in inside and it's just a lovely feel, but it's the most beautiful brewery display I can think of of any, um, you know, brew pub in, in the country where it is really celebrating the brew house from the drinking floor, um, you know, and uh, tell tell me about you know who, who put that design in, and like, clearly it, it was a very subjective opinion of my own. But 
you know, I, I, I've heard a lot of similar responses where people have really enjoyed the venue. Um, we're quite fortunate. So Simon, who I think I mentioned at the start, our other business partner, he's, um, you know, he's built many a pub in Sydney. I won't name the list because there's uh, many of them. Um, so he had a lot of experience in the, the building side. And, um, and we're fortunate and unfortunate uh, in, in a couple of ways to actually be building the brewery during COVID when it first hit. So it kind of meant that that kind of threw out the the any chance of us having you know expensive architects or designers or anything like that. So really, the design you see at Filter was literally the three of us, um, so Mick, Simon, and I sitting down and going, "Okay, let's do this here. Let's do this. Let's paint the wall black here, and we'll do this, and this will make this shine. Let's build a deck so you look like you're outside." And that's really how it was built. Um, and a lot of it too was our own work, which you know we're really proud of because of COVID. And I have no skills in building, like absolutely zero. <laughs> I can't even change a light bulb. <laughs> but, um, Sorry, <laughs> I can't. I really can't. I'm very injury prone. And um, but to be able to say that I helped lay the slab that the tanks um, are on is, I think for us was a real blessing in disguise. And that's what COVID gave us. It gave us this ability to to put our you know our own stamp on on the building. And like, like I said, your, your original question, where'd it come from? It just came from us sitting down and looking out at that space. And everything was done, you know, at that stage. It's not like we had a plan back at the start to go, this is the, the drawing, that's what it looks like. We kind of opened the wall up because it used to be a big wall because it's an old um, old yogurt factory. Once we opened it and started looking, we are going, this would be a great place to, to sit on the deck, which is, I'm sure, where you sat and looked out. But again, we did want to have those clear spaces in the brewery where you could clearly see the stainless. And what we're all about is that brewery, but also celebrate inside and, and create like an almost like a pub environment. Yeah, and no, very much, very much, yeah. We, we wanted two distinct spaces. And it wasn't just the aesthetic either. It was, you know, there was just something about it. And it's, it's the intangibles, I think, sometimes where it looks good, but then it also looks good in a way that, signals what the space is and you could tell that there were regulars that were there who were you know greeted by name by the the the, the bar person but even as somebody who was unknown walked in was greeted very nicely nice menu you know and there, there was just something about the traditional old pub feel about what you've done and then the the, the beers are you know are almost an added bonus yeah and, and that's we want to create these spaces we call them spaces here in, in Filter, and I know you probably haven't been up to Marrickville Springs yet, our new rooftop bar, but that's also a completely different experience. Think Palm Springs and rooftop vibes, but we created that <laughs> okay. as well. And we're about to... Miami Vice. I can probably let this slip. We are about to create a fourth area as well here in, uh, in Filter. So um, we'll, uh, we'll kind of announce that when we get a little bit further down, but it's all about creating these different experiences. And we know that there are different occasions that you want to come to a brewery, but you know, if you want to come and sit and watch the brewers brew on a Friday and sit and have lunch, you can sit there and watch the guys and even talk to the guys and ask them what they're doing. We wanted that experience, but also at night when we turn off the lights, we wanted it to feel like a bar downstairs, like an old pub where you could sit and stand. Well, back in the days when you could stand and have a schooner and talk to people, um, that kind of yeah. vibe. Our bar top down there is came out of one of Sydney's oldest uh, pubs and uh, we oh, re-salvaged it and um, I can't name the pub, but I can, it has come out of one of Sydney's oldest pubs. Learn something and new as well. It was, it's yeah. a beautiful piece of timber and it was, you know, it 
was a pain in the ass to actually get back to to its to where it should. But that's a bit of heritage in that in that pub area downstairs. And then upstairs, we were like, okay, well, there are people that don't really want that experience. They don't want to come and look at a brew. They don't want to come and sit in a pub. They want to come up and you know have a couple of cocktails or you know some beer slushies, which we've um, we've been experimenting with. Um, and it is a very different experience. You can sit out there outside, look at the stars, you know. Watch the, uh, the the planes go by, and it, it, I hope that's what we're trying to create—something for filter where everyone can be accommodated. Um, you know, we we don't like to isolate people. It's not just craft beer drinkers; it's anyone. It's why I think our third beer was a lager. You know, it was it had to be something that everyone could enjoy, and we've kind of we've stuck to that mantra the whole way through, and I think you know we'll continue to do that because it's it's. It's seeing us on a good path at the moment. I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. So, Steph Constantoulis and Max Hermelay, thank you very much for joining us for this conversation about not just Australian beer, but German beer. Yeah, it's been really good, mate. And thanks for having us on. Yeah. my It was absolutely my pleasure. And I'll put a link because uh, if anyone hasn't been uh, to Sydney and visited uh, the, the, the Filter Brew Pub, it's, it's one of the must visits um, in terms of you know, modern you know, pub culture. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Cheers. And the beer's pretty good too, Max. <laughs> That's good to hear. Cheers, I appreciate guys. that. Cheers. Thank you. And that was Steph Constantoulis and Max Hamilly. If you're a listener, don't forget you can join the conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search for Radio Brews News and use the password Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts and ideas. There is links to all of those in the show notes. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Now, here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer is like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous, you know, it's got bitter and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the, the whiskey is kind of like a, a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me, you have the prism and the, the beer shines through it. But what, the, what it does by adding extra brightness, uh, lift, and alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out. And then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Port is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the, of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those, each of those components. That's the magic of this, this whiskey um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like, in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for 15-plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does 
everything that you would expect a whiskey to do, but in a completely different way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like, it's exhilarating. It's exciting. Like no other whiskey. Yeah. Well, it's probably, well, it's my favorite whiskey to make every year because of that. So as a distiller with 15 years experience, what has Chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer? Yeah, probably that I'm a bit dumb. So I've, I started off and was like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. There's no chance that I'll, you know, this whole thing. I was so sceptical. And then we went through sort of one. So we sort of take different casks that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like, what does it taste? Like, oh, it doesn't taste very good. And we did that about seventh time, where it was actually the very last whiskey um, sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casks have that we tried that it was like, oh, wow, that's like incredible. We have to do this. And at that point, I don't even think I'd spoken to Scotty. I think um, one of my outsiders, Johnny, had been speaking to, to Scotty about it. And I called Scotty. I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about, at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour um, but do it in a slightly different way. So if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey? You know, Wolf Number 1 was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf Number 2 was um, trying to provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the, the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about excess. Absolutely, there should be too much of everything going on all of the time. It was just this outrageous over-the-top thing. The Wolf Number 4, which is my favourite, it's actually my favourite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years. So, you know, 500,000 whiskies that I've blended. Um, that's my number one. I've got three bottles at home and they seem to go, it used to be four bottles. So it's probably, a, it's probably a pretty good sign. Wolf Number 4 was, to me, just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer and just it was just a little piece of um exhilaration it's just every time i try i just can't believe how much is going on in that uh how easily you can see every component of the beer but also the whiskey but it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience i suppose the next flavor and then this year this year is the one with the most beer in it so usually what would happen is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out. But we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year, the, the beer sits as this kind of solid block within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way, which is, which is really magical. And then if you add water to the whiskey, which sort of changes the surface tension, then it just erupts and launches out, which is just, yeah, there's no whiskey like it on the planet. And it's just, as you can tell, I get pretty excited. Finally, with so much detail already provided, I asked Chris just how this whiskey is made. In terms of making this thing, there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through. So. We send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, uh, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships and it's just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Sebelsfield Winery and mostly the wood for those 
will be at least 100 years old. So they would have held wine in it and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for, you know, 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But, yeah, generally generally around 100-year-old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey, then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne to um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty. Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskies, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue because if, if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and shoot, ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidisation, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being, you know, 60 plus percent is it freezes that that process. It freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so, yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up. So we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be. And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to, to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels. And within 20 seconds of that barrel being emptied, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, and so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is pain in the ass, to be honest. But it's, a, it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good. So that's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5 launching on August 8th this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows. 